This week on Thinking Biblically, in honor of Israel Independence Day this week, we're going to be looking at the relationship of Messiah to the land. Welcome back to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman. Thinking Biblically is a podcast dedicated to exploring how all of Scripture speaks to all of life. Don't forget to subscribe, review, and share. Um, and uh, also, please feel free to send me your questions or comments at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. Well, this week on uh, on Thursday is Yom Hatzmaut. That's Israel Independence Day. It's the 74th anniversary since the establishment of the modern state of Israel in May of 1948. And uh, we're not going to be talking politics, but we're going to be looking at a subject that I don't hear anything about normally. Maybe you have, and and as I mentioned, please feel free to engage me on, on this topic. But something that we don't hear about at all is, is how what Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah, how what he's done relates to the land of Israel. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, last week, I had Doris Grey Eyes, a Canadian Indigenous woman, on on the show, and um, something that I would love to explore more with her and others is the um, is the Indigenous understanding of the importance of the land. We are all dependent upon this beautiful planet that God designed and, and put us on, and yet, uh, for a lot of Bible readers, Bible believers, um, there's this disconnect between things material and things spiritual. Uh, I've heard statements, and I don't know if I've mentioned it on Thinking Biblically since I started this last June, but um, there's a tendency to talk about different realities. They'll say, you know, the the physical world is is uh, one kind of reality, and then the, the heavenly spiritual world, that's a greater reality. Well, it, in fact, there's only one reality. Reality is the way things are. And uh, God is the one who has made things the way things are. And the whole um, object of, of thinking biblically, the, the goal that I'm seeking to, to achieve here is help us all, myself included, to discover how God, how we see God's perspective in his word. And God doesn't only have a, a view of life, the way God sees life is the way life really is. And that is what we call reality. And the reality that God has established is one that has two aspects to it. There's the material, physical, visible world. And there is, and maybe world is not the the, um, the best way to put it in, in this sense. And then there's the, the unseen aspects. And they're all created by God. Everything except God himself has been created by God. God created the unseen things and the seen things, the things we see, the things we touch, the things we uh, interact with, with our senses, the, the physical world. And God made that just like he made angels and, and other aspects of the of the spiritual world. And again, I'm using the word world. It may not be the best. Um, realm, uh, aspect, whatever it is, 
We live in a complex creation that's made up of the seen and the unseen. And sadly, there's a, there's a tendency to so elevate the unseen things as to diminish and disregard the, the material. And there's, there's the sense that that's been borrowed from what I understand it's from uh, Platonic thinking in, in Greek philosophy that the material world is, is of a lower standard. Uh, that's where evil exists. Um, and the goal of the spiritual person is to one day shed ourselves of the material existence. And if you listen to a lot of, of a lot of Christian songs, you, you're going to hear the, this goal of one day coming into this heavenly reality that is immaterial. And that's simply not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God created the, uh, the universe very good, and he put human beings in charge of planet Earth. And because we failed to follow God in his requirements, we brought God's curse upon the creation. And the story of the Bible is God's plan to um, to rectify the curse, to bring about a great renewal, something that we eventually encounter in Isaiah ch chapter uh, 66, that God will create a new heavens and a new earth. But the way some people talk about these things, you'd think that uh, we're only expecting a new heavens, a new refreshing, wonderful spiritual reality disconnected uh, from some decrepit material one. The, the decrepit material one is going to be dealt with, and we are going to see the establishment of a renewed uh, a renewed earth that's material. And, and we see this reflected in when the, when the Lord Yeshua rises from the dead, he is a physical being. And, and I have to be careful, there's, there's so many... Um, tangents here that I can go down, and I, I want to avoid that. But back to my discussion with, with Doris last week, uh, it, the, the, the connection that her people retain with regard to the importance of the land and how much that means to them, and their understanding that a creator created the land and, that, and, and the creator uses the land to provide for people. These are biblical concepts. And while in in um, in indigenous history there there'll be elements that aren't biblical, there are perspectives that we possibly can learn from. And it's one of the things about uh, when we interact with people from other cultures, we could we could uh, be helped to see certain aspects of life that maybe we ignore because in, in our particular culture, uh, we don't share those same kind of values. And there's something about the land in particular. For, for many of us modern urbanites, we are very removed from the land. Uh, we Our groceries are gotten from a, a supermarket. Very few of us today, a small minority of people, actually farm the land anymore. But without farming the land, we wouldn't have the food that we have. So that's never changed, but our perspective of how we're provided for certainly has. And so the importance of land and connection to land is something that we've really lost. And of course, that, that 
you know, apart from urbanization itself, there's been so much migration over the past many, many years that many of us are disconnected from the land of our heritage. And so some people might look at the, at the Jewish people and find it strange that we have such a connection to a particular land. And, and some, even Christians, Bible believers, might think, well, that's passe, that's just, that was for an ancient time. But is that really true? Um, and there's aspects of the importance of the land in general and the importance of the land specifically to the people of Israel that are, these things are very important for us to, to uh, understand, to grasp, uh, to help us in our understanding of the whole Bible, that these are really, these are core elements. So I'd like to spend more time and, I, and I'd like to come back to this issue of the land, the importance of the material world. I, I do want to say a couple of things about it be, before I, I delve into it, but it, it actually deserves a much, much um, longer, uh, longer conversation here. Um, and if you know anybody that uh, could be really helpful with topics like this, please, please let me know. Uh, and feel free to recommend other guests uh, for Thinking Biblically, and uh, we can see how that goes. Um, so, as I already mentioned, so God makes the world very good, and he makes human beings to be stewards of the creation. And it's this material, i got to come up with a better word than, than world. It, it, this, we are called to take care of the creation, and, and that's the sphere of our service. We're, we were made to be embodied beings, not disembodied beings. I, I know that when the believer dies, we are in safekeeping with the Lord, and the scripture seems to suggest that that's a conscious uh, time where we have awareness of that, but that's a time in between the times before the eventual resurrection where we will be embodied again. So the body is our sphere of service. We're told in Romans 12 that we're to give our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. There isn't this idea of somehow detach ourselves, some psychological detachment where we serve God in this uh, intangible spiritual sphere. No, no. The spiritual, for human beings, the spiritual is expressed in and through our bodies. And, and so back again to the, the land. The land is such an important part of, of human history. There's an interesting, uh, something that Paul says in Acts 17, verses 24 to 27. He's, he's talking to people uh, in the city of Athens, and he springboards off of seeing this um, monument to, this, to the, uh, the unknown God. And he uses that to share the truth about the unseen God in a culture where God was made to be um, seen through something made by human hands, and which is idolatry, which is which is, if anything is unreality, that's unreality. That's just false. That is not the way God is to be uh, communicated uh, to human beings. And this is what Paul says, Acts 17, 24 to 27. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he 
is actually not far from each one of us. And so God has set the periods of time where people live and the boundaries of our dwelling place. There's something about where we live that's important in uh, who we are as human beings and our, our relationship to God. And I'd like to spend more time in that in particular, but we're not going to. Um, so speaking of God setting those boundaries, though, and how it relates to our topic at hand today as we look at Messiah and the land, meaning the land of Israel, um, God's, God's development of his restoration plan um, I like to call this God's epic story. I think you could see my Bible study in the back here pointing out. There it is. Those of you that are watching the YouTube version, God's epic story. That's my Bible study version. Let me know if you want a copy. Um, I'd also love to come. Uh, and uh, it's a seminar that I do, and I try to help people see the big picture of, of God's plan. Well, key to that is God's sending God, not God's. Sound always sounds funny, but that's the right grammar. So when God sent Abram, Avram, uh, he sent him to this particular geographical location, and it was essential for him to go there. Let's read that, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God calls him to go to this place, and if he does this, God's going to do these great things through him and his people. That when he gets there, we read verse 7 of chapter 12 of Genesis, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so God promises this land where he's he's basically the only one that's there with his wife, his, his nephew, uh, in this foreign land after traveling all that way, and God makes him a promise that he's going to give him that land. Uh, as the story goes, uh, both him and his nephew Lot end up having lots of animals, and the land, the particular region where they were, couldn't sustain all their animals, and so he offers to Lot to go pick an area, and that Abram would remain in the part that Lot does not pick. And uh, we read in Genesis 14, uh, this, starting at verse 14, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So again, God promises to Abram, the land. And so then we're going to take a, a walk through Genesis chapter 15 to see what happens to this. And we're getting to what does the Messiah have to do with the land, with the land promised to Abram. Uh, so here we go. So this, this is Genesis 15. We're going to work through the chapter. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So this is all before his name is changed to Abraham. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. 
But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So what's happening is God told Abram that if he goes to this land, he would make him into a great nation. He promised him the land in in chapter 12. He reiterates the, the promise in chapter 14, but he still doesn't have any offspring of his own. And so the issue is his anything that is is Abram's, his inheritance, which would include this promise, would go to his servant. So, verse 3, and, did I read this already? No, I didn't. Verse 3, and Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, rightfully so, this statement about Abraham believing the Lord and being counted to him as righteousness is focused on by a lot of believers and because it, it is a foundational verse with regard to the fact that Abraham's being regarded as right with God was based on his faith, which means trust. He trusted in what God said. What did God say? You are going to have many offspring of your own from someone who's going to come from your own body. And Abram accepted God's word as true, even though him and and Sarah couldn't have, her name was Sarai at the time, couldn't have kids. And then the Lord continues. And he said to him, God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Again, the land, the land, the land is always part and parcel of the promise. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. I'm going to talk about the the cut-up pieces in a moment. Verse 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He's talking about the eventual enslavement of the Israelites in Egypt. Verse 14, But I will I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So that's the, the forewarning of what's going to happen to him, uh, his descendants. There's going to be many of them. They're going to end up being in this difficult situation, and then they're going to come back to this land. Before I get to the next really important part, uh, this whole idea of in the land, out of the land, in the land, out of the land, there's this exile motif that keeps happening to the people of Israel. The the first, we actually start to see a little bit with Abram because he, due to certain reasons, he kind of takes off, comes back um, for one reason or another. Then uh, we see it with Israel ending up in, in Egypt. They weren't being punished. They're actually being protected. 
but there's this idea that they left to come back. And then, of course, later on, we see this. Um, and there's, again, so much to be said about this, but that whole idea of exile and then being brought back. And there's this like God-given anchor with regard to this land and how key it is to the overall story of God. And one of the reasons why I'm sharing this is there's something about this that's not only important for the people of Israel, but there's something about our connection to our places that's important. We treat this today like it's a nothing. Now, there are many people, like not only Doris last week and, 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 and her people, but there's people all over the globe that regard their, their homeland as, as so much part of their identity. Now, we could take that too far where our land becomes an idol, where it takes the place of God and it can completely control our lives. And it's one of the things the people of Israel had to learn that, the, that they could know God in Babylon. They could know God anywhere. Uh, in fact, it's Jewish people that are sent out to bring the God of Israel to the nations. Uh, that's, that's the whole, the sending out of the, of the first followers of Yeshua to go into the nations uh, because, because God was going to establish his reign throughout the entire earth. And there again, there's, we call this like a land motif, the importance of God's rule over the earth. Knowing God is not simply knowing him as detached from his creation. There's something about what, that even from the beginning, that God was to be served on planet earth. That was ruined, in a sense, temporarily by our, our first parents, but God is working to restore that. And core to that restoration plan is his workings with the people of Israel. And there's something about the connection of the land of Israel to the people of Israel that's also core in helping all people relate to their lands in the way that God wants. But now let's look how the Messiah himself is so core, so key to the relationship of the land to the people of Israel. We're still in chapter 15, in the last section here. God has just finished telling Abram about what's going to happen to his people in Egypt, and then we read verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a flaming fire pot, sorry, a, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Those are the pieces that were cut up, the various animals that, that he cut up. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, people, some people have a hard time with the fact that others had to be displaced for the people of Israel. Those people were being judged regardless of God's plan for Israel. God was doing two things at once. When later on under Joshua, when they conquer the land, the people are being judged for their sin. And at the same time, God is fulfilling his, pro his land promise, which is part of his whole promise to Abraham, as, we, as we've been reading here. Uh, and so what's happening here 
Abram sees this. It's some sort of vision. He might still be sleeping. He might be awake. We don't know. It's besides the point. But he sees the smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passing between the pieces. Now, what seems to be going on here is this is part of the ritual of a formal covenant. Now, in Hebrew, when you read in English, make a covenant, it is always or almost always cut a covenant, not make a covenant. There's a Hebrew word for make. It's not make, it's cut. You cut a covenant. And it appears that this idea of cut a covenant comes from this ritual where these animals would be cut and then the people making a covenant, whether it's you know, if two people are making a covenant with each other, they would walk between the pieces. There's a reference to this in Jeremiah 34, verse 18. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that I made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut into and pass between its parts. And the idea behind this walking between the pieces is in this solemn agreement, this type of contract called a covenant, what this was symbolizing was if either party would not uphold their part of this agreement, they were saying to one another, may I become like these cut up animals. So may I bear the consequences of breaking this covenant if, if, if I fail doing my part. The interesting thing though is when Abram saw this this sight, whether vision or, or whatever, he didn't walk through the pieces. He saw, and I, I wish I could tell you exactly the uh, why it was a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, but it appears this was a way of saying that God himself was walking through the pieces, and only God was walking between the pieces. Instead of this partnership between God and Abram walking together between the pieces, and whoever would break the covenant, which of course could only be Abram, then uh, Abram would bear the brunt, bear the, the consequences of, of, the, of the broken covenant. But what we're seeing here is only God himself is taking responsibility should, if and should the covenant breaks, which is what happens. Israel fails to live up to its covenant obligations. And this is one of the reasons why Israel was chosen. And it's not the only reason why Israel was chosen. Israel was chosen by God to bring blessing to the world, which God accomplishes through the Messiah. He accomplishes through the the, the uh, responsibility of receiving and passing on the scriptures to the world, um, being the channel through which God reveals himself to the world, but also Israel shows the whole world what anyone would do um, if God calls them to live up to his standards. So God chooses a nation, he actually creates a nation through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, gives them his, his word, his, his ways, his standards, and Israel does what any other nation would do 
fail to live up to God's standards. And so the world's supposed to look at the people of Israel and see and see in them sort of like a mirror and see themselves. And because Israel's failed, Israel's failure to keep the covenant uh, shows the whole world that any nation would have failed in the same way. But Israel was the one chosen to carry God's truth, to bring the Messiah, and to fail in its covenant obligations. And, and so what we see in this, this the thing with the, the pot and the smoking pot and the flaming torch, if I said that correctly, is God was saying, should you fail to keep the covenant, I will bear, I will become like these animals. And that's what Yeshua did. Yeshua came and he took the brunt of the consequences of the broken covenant. Now, what a lot of people want to do is they want to look at what Yeshua did and quickly go and look at the implications of what he did for the whole world. And that's essential. And the Bible teaches that. And we need to teach that. And we need to emphasize that. But we need to understand that in order to understand those implications in the way that we should, we need to understand the foundational truth that primarily Yeshua suffered and died for the sins of Israel first because it was for the sake of the broken covenant that he was dying. And by doing that, by the righteous one fulfilling his messianic obligations to Israel, he brings forth blessings to all the world. He solves Israel's problem, and as a result, solves the whole world's problem. But let's not take the great blessing of the world's problem at the, the resolving of the world's problem and use that to eclipse what God did for Israel through Israel's Messiah. There's a sense in which Yeshua died for the people of Israel first and foremost, and then most importantly, but secondarily, for the rest of the world. So I think we could all agree Yeshua died for everyone, right? Whether you, whether you agree with me on this primacy of the people of Israel in terms of what he did. But notice what's going on here with this whole scene. So Abram sees this vision, which amounts to God himself and only walking through the pieces. And notice the words that God says. So God is saying, Abram, whatever happens, good or bad, I am taking responsibility for this covenant. And he says, and it says, again, verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, and so on. And so when Abram sees this vivid, dramatic scene where God commits himself to bear the consequences of the broken covenant 
what are the covenant details that he's committing himself to by saying, I will take the brunt of the failure. I will take the consequences. I will become like these animals if, if, if failure comes into this covenant agreement, this covenant arrangement. I will take the, I will take the consequences. What's the promise? What was God committing himself to do by offering himself to die on behalf of this covenant? What was he committing himself to? It had to do with the land. Yeshua didn't simply die for our sins. Yeshua didn't only die for the sins of people. Yeshua died for the land. In God's brilliance, he established a plan that included the promise of land to a particular people. That promise is so important that he was willing to send his son to die an unjust death on a Roman cross to ensure that promise of the land to Abram and his people. We can say, therefore, Messiah died for the land. Now, I can't say that everything that surrounded the return of the people of Israel to the land, the Jewish people to the land of Israel in 1948, that every single aspect was from God. And there were a lot of believers that were so gung-ho, but then when they actually saw the Jewish people acting like normal human beings, and not every um, action in, in the in the reestablishment of the state was at the highest level of nobility, uh, there were... Christians who had been so raw, raw about the return to the land that they and then gave up on on that and, and said, "No, this can't really be of God." It's one of the the things that so st struck us in in 2015. I, I led a tour to Israel, and there's this idea that you could, you could sense it that they're God's faithfulness to the Jewish people in the return uh, to um, our our promised land, our ancient homeland. And yet, we're just like everybody else. And yet, some people think, no, there's, of course, there's the, there's the anti-Semites. And then we got the Philo-Semites. There are people that are so enamored with Jewish people until they actually meet one and see that we're just like everybody else. And we're failing to see that the message of the good news that we're given through the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua, is one for normal people, people who fail in fact, if we're not willing to admit that we are that we fail, then according to the letter of 1 John, we don't know God. You can claim to God, know God all you want, but if you're not willing to admit that you blow it, technical term is that if you if it's that we that you sin, if you're not willing to admit that you sin, that you fall short on a regular basis, then you're not connected. You're not connected. You don't really know him. And, and yet, then some people that maybe they can admit that about themselves, and they look at people like the Jewish people, and we, ex we expect us to be like these, everyone's a Bible hero. 
Well, look at the, even look at the Bible heroes. Have you read the Bible? They're messed up. There's so much struggle and so much difficulty and so much sin, and and yet there's those like King David who who truly knew God. And even in, in the New Testament, there's this phony idea that that now that we we know the Messiah and we've experienced the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, that now we're perfect. Have you read the New Testament? Have you do you read what real believers in Yeshua do and do to each other and 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 the troubles and the 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 issues that that the believers have? That, that doesn't let us off the hook. That's the whole thing about confessing sin and that that we're supposed to be able to look at ourselves and and admit where we fail and and look to God for forgiveness and and others for forgiveness and we need to do better. And we need to grow in righteousness. We need to take our lives very seriously. But we're just human beings. And God's working in a very interesting way, a fascinating way, in the land of Israel today. And as I said at the beginning, this is not about politics, and I don't have anything to say about uh, political parties and political solutions. But what I want to leave you all with today is a, an appreciation of the importance of the land of Israel for the people of Israel, that God in his plans and his purposes, that, that the land is essential. We see at the end of the book of Revelation, the, the kings of the nations come and bring their gifts to the new Jerusalem, with the, the gates of which and the and foundations of which are all named after Jewish people. I, I can look it up, and I should have written it down, but one of them is, is the apostles, and the other and the other are the names of the tribes of Israel, all Jewish names. And so the Jewish heritage of the, of, of the renewed Jerusalem is part of where all this is going, when God restores all things. And that there, there's something about the nations, there's something about the, the nation of Israel that continues on forever. And, and so and so the building blocks of this that began began with Abraham are all part and parcel of some things that are so important to God. If they're important to Him, they should be important to us. And somehow it seems the better we understand the place of the land of Israel for the people of Israel, the better we're going to understand the place of the land for other nations. There is such a need today to understand how to take what God says in the Bible and know how it works out in our daily lives. The biblical rubber, the spiritual rubber needs to hit the road and make a difference in our, in our lives in every way and in, in every aspect of life. What do you think? Does this, does this make sense? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Let me know. Write me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. Please remember to subscribe and to share this with friends and others. And so until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically.